Hi there, I'm Jay Humphrey, and you're listening to our High Performance CEO Special, the latest conversation where we talk to one of the top CEOs in the UK, and we hear from them totally disarmed, completely vulnerable, and brutally honest about what it's really like running some of the most successful businesses in Europe. Remember, this podcast reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. We just help to unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, myself and Professor Damien Hughes are about to speak to one of the leading business people on the planet. And here is what you can expect. The first year that student loans came out was the year I went to uni and set me out for, if the student loans company are listening to this, I'm really sorry. And teenagers, please don't do this. But I lied that I was buying books and I took it out to trade. Entrepreneurialism really, I think, is creating a lot from a little. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean, I think, that you're building a business that people want to talk to you about or that's listed on the stock exchange. I will always say, though, it is very important and good to get good experience elsewhere with other people. No one likes being told what to do. No one wants to spend 10 hours slogging in a shop sometimes or whatever else it is that starts you off in life. But, you know, I, I often say, and I actually have a lot of friends who worked at McDonald's too, who would say it was like, it was like a mini MBA in a great life school. If we're going to work together closely, first of all, I'm a strong personality. You better have a strong personality or this is not going to work so well. But also I want someone that's going to teach me something or push back occasionally, not just for the sake of it, but because that's how it should be. All right. So we're about to speak to Emma Sinclair. You know, at the age of 29, she became the youngest person in the UK to take a company public. She, like me, worked at McDonald's. Unlike me, she didn't get fired from McDonald's. But what I love about this conversation is that Emma is going to break down for you, not just what she's done, but why she's done it and how she's got there. Emma has this amazing energy. She has this real desire to enact change and this belief that it's not a belief that one person can change the world, but actually the way that she operates, I think, is proof that one person can change the world. One person can change the way that we think. One person can change the way that we act. One person can change the way that we move forwards. And if there's only one person whose life gets changed by this episode of the High Performance Podcast, then we've done our job. But what I would love you to do um, is to pass this on. There are people everywhere looking for inspiration, looking for help, looking for guidance. And Emma is a woman who can offer so much to so many. I'm so excited for you to hear this episode of the High Performance Podcast. Can I just say it wouldn't be possible without the brilliant collaboration of PwC. They often set the bar for leadership, culture, inclusion and the future of work. Their purpose is to build trust and solve important problems, which is exactly what we're trying to do here on the High Performance Podcast. I also love their global strategy, which they've called the new equation, which is bringing their ideas and their philosophy to life for their clients, for people, but most of all for society. Because we know that you can combine technology with human ingenuity, passion and experience and and therefore, you can work with organisations to deliver more intelligent, sustained outcomes. And that's exactly what PwC are doing. But let's get straight to it, because this is one of the um, most enjoyable conversations we've had on the High Performance Podcast. Uh, you're going to love it. I know you are. So let's get straight to it. This is the latest episode of the High Performance Podcast CEO Specials with the amazing Emma Sinclair. Enjoy. So Emma, would you please start by telling us your definition of high performance? Oh, start off on a, on a tricky one. Uh, for me, I think probably high performance is consistency and persistency and that consistence and persistence doing what it's supposed to do. Very nice. Um, well, let's talk about your consistency and also your persistence. I, and when I, when I think about this interview, I kept on coming back to someone that took a path that most people don't. But not only that, you seem so keen to tell other people about the path that you took and the fact that you are keen to open up the world of entrepreneurship to so many people, which I, I think is fantastic. But I want to really go straight there. We'll talk about your own experiences in a moment, but how do you, after all your years of hard work and graft and achievements, how do you think we can inspire the next generation who are at school right now being taught in the same way that we probably all were 20 or 30 years ago? How can we inspire them to understand the power of entrepreneurship? I guess storytelling is always the best way 
to reach and communicate, which is, of course, partly what this is. And to provide some context on my journey and the things that I've done and, and the path that I've taken and anything that anyone might read. I mean, it all starts with small steps. You know, I didn't have an ex extraordinary education. Um, I wasn't an extraordinary child per se, but there were things I did when I was younger with my dad. There were things that I really found interesting that led me on the journey that have gotten me to running Enterprise Alumni now. And I think we forget, right? So teachers are in charge of teaching you at school and your French lessons and your history homework and whatever else that might be. It's extremely onerous to expect teachers and schools to also teach people to be great entrepreneurs or fantastic doctors. I mean, there's only so much that, that a school teacher can do. So for my part, you know, I had, uh, my father took me to school every day from the age of three, three, four, all the way through to the age of 18. And, and we did things on the way to school, which when I look back, were a stepping stone to me understanding stock markets, were a stepping stone to me wanting to go into business. So I think in terms of inspiration, it's uh, probably just storytelling of ordinary people that didn't start out with any kind of sense of an empire are certainly in my case uh, aiming to get in that direction so one of our favorite questions we like asking a guest emma is that um is it's a variation on the question that the child psychologist howard gardner asked he says rather than ask how how clever are you we should ask instead how are you clever i absolutely love that i hadn't heard that before uh, it's probably quite a lot to put on a child or a young person because you don't necessarily know and i remember my parents friends saying things to me about my personality which i never really understood at the time i was a mortally shy child i avoided drama public speaking anything of that ilk so i was not the kid that tried to get out of games or getting in the cold swimming pool i was quite well behaved suggest that I stand up in front of anybody and it was absolutely mortifying so probably if you'd asked me at that time I would have struggled a bit so maybe the other question is actually not to ask young people that or kids that but it's to ask the people that know them the best um, which I find is the way now when I see other people and their children I'm like I can see what you could become or I can see what you're really good at. So how would you answer it for you then so what so tell us a little bit about what your father was doing and what kind of intelligence that was nurturing in you? Yeah, I don't know whether it was intelligence necessarily, but my dad to this day still says that we, he and I, but that we are a family of door knockers. Uh, you knock on doors and you create opportunities. So the thing that I did with my dad is that every day on the way to school, we used to read share prices in the FT. And that is not because my father was a stockbroker or in finance, which he wasn't. And it wasn't because we had tons of cash <laughs> in stocks and shares, but he used to buy a little slither of the shares that were sold in privatizations in their 80s and 90s and so in the morning i guess after we'd done what's the times table and how many red cars can you see and what's the capital city and any other games anyone can think of to uh, keep a small child busy in the back of a car he really did stretch it out and it went into guess the share price so every morning on the way to school it just became a habit that i would obviously the newspaper was far bigger than me when uh, i first started this but it would be you know, go and find the share price. It was two. Or th I still remember what the stocks were. They're, they're, they're not, they don't exist anymore as companies. But um, so I used to go do that. So I think all that was at the time was my dad and I playing a game and me fighting with a newspaper to open it. That's how it started. But then I think if I look back, it just made, and of course you can't do this with all children, but it made the stock market something utterly accessible and not an ivory tower. We then over time, used to talk about other parts of the newspaper because first we do the share price for anyone that's familiar with looking at a share price in a newspaper and not just on your iphone uh, there's other information that's listed in the back of the ft or whatever newspaper you're looking at the market cap the price earnings ratio and we would do that and we would spot that what's the market cap and then you know as i grew a little bit older and we were I could read a bit better and could understand a bit better on the back page of the ft is is was the lex column which we used to say was like the kind of news and views, but in the world of business. So we would read the back of that and it would be like an announcement that a company was making a disposal or there was an acquisition or a new CEO of the FTSE 100. So I guess it's not dissimilar to um, reading a magazine and looking at the gossip column. So in many ways, first of all, that just completely demystified the world of business or anything else because it was just like what my dad and I did. And, and Incidentally, it took a really long time in life for me to understand that that's just not what people do. Because later in life, I would tell people we did this and they'd be like, oh, that's so cool. They would be like, why are you trading stock at university with your student loan? 
might be and I think it took a while for me to realize not everybody plays and learns the stock market as a small child was context being explained as well then so I was apart from the numbers and the intrigue of is the market up or down did you and your father debate the context of why that might be the case or what could affect it yeah I mean you know I'd know when there was something bad some bad news and things went down and when there was good news things went up and over time so we're talking like four to 18 over time there was of course a, a really long journey of starting to correlate news and things that we might have read or knew were going on in the world with why things were a bit tricky. You know, so by the time I got to 18, obviously it's a, a quite a long journey. You can understand that if times are tricky or if there's a recessionary environment, then probably restaurants and retail are going to be suffering a little bit. So, I mean, it wasn't the only thing we did as regards business, but it was just an absolutely every single day thing that set me up for the first year that student loans came out was the year I went to uni and set me out for, if the student loans company are listening to this, I'm really sorry. And, and teenagers, please don't do this. But I lied that I was buying books and I took it out to trade. Let's talk about that then. Do you remember the moment that you thought, hold on, I'm being given money to go to uni. Like I can do something even more with that money than to buy the books I need. And also, were you worried you wouldn't then have the books that you need or how did that work? Uh, when I look back, there are so many things because I was I was a well-behaved child, right? I was not the child that that smoked around the corner of uh, the school or like bunked school. I was a bit naughty, but no one ever caught me. Um, first of all, I remember it being slid under my door that there, I think it was fifteen hundred pounds or something in the interest rate, and me thinking that sounds good. I also remember in the same week, so Freshers' Week of Leeds University, that I had a pot of birthday money in Barclays that was in my parents' name, care of Emma Sinclair, which is what parents can do for a bank account. And, and of course, I, I was quite young for my year. I was always a, a year younger than everyone. And I just turned 18. And so I went in to, you know, deal with my Barclays current account and get my £25 overdrafts or whatever it was that seemed really helpful at the time. And I remember thinking, well, I, I know that I've got this I think it was about £2,200 sitting in a bank account that's not mine, but it is mine. And I asked behind the counter something about my bank account. I said another branch, would I be able to move it here too? And they were like, well, if you're over 18 and you've got your passport, uh, sure. So um, not only did I get my student loan, but also I got that pot of cash, which actually, seeing as we're talking about younger years and thinking about how you can inspire people, I will just tell you that pot came about with, you know, my grandparents or my mum's a twin. So I'm, I, I get all the gifts from my mum's twin, um, you know, 10 quid for my birthday, 20 quid for my birthday. But my grandpa, when I purportedly, when I was five said to me, if you bring me your pocket money, I'll double it and I'll, I'll put it in the local building society. So my grandma's 98 and she's still alive. She still remembers this. My grandpa sadly passed away. But he always used to say to me, like over the years, well, many years later, he used to say to me that I used to, you know, he used to think that I'd rock up with 5p or, you know, 25p. And I'd brought, and they moved down to Brighton and they, I used to rock up with, I'd, you know, collected every penny and 2p I'd found around the house. And I would save absolutely everything and I wouldn't put it in my piggy bank at home I would bring it all to my grandpa so sometimes I would rock up with like 10 pounds which when you're little and also this is some time ago was was a bit of a shock for my grandpa so that pot grew a little bit faster than I think everyone thought because um my Bradford and Bringley pot that was my grandpa's you see he, he had to honor it so until I was 18, I used to rock up with cash so let me just jump in there then Emma and ask you like because we've got young children ourselves and getting them to save for a rainy day isn't always so easy so what what was your mindset that gave you that fortitude to want to save rather than spend i really am a big believer at any age in incentivization and obviously there's a tipping point right when you're six any incentivization probably doesn't work if um if Sweet. you can if you can have sweets, yeah, exactly, or chocolate or just something that sparkles or whatever else it is. I get that. And my dad always used to sort of effectively tie in working hard with rewards. I mean, I, in my first job was in McDonald's. And when I eventually went on to get my first proper job in investment banking, I remember the board member for the investment bank I eventually joined saying they'd never had someone apply for mergers and acquisitions who'd worked in McDonald's, which I found astounding. But my dad had said to me, if you want a car when you're 18, I'll match just so we're clear, it was a fairly crappy fifth hand one, but I'll match whatever, whatever you make. And I was 16 when he told me this and no one would hire me. So I went on a rampage to find a Saturday job 
And the only place that would take me, that would take 16-year-olds was McDonald's. So I think I've always had in my life that my dad created something out of nothing. He lost his dad very young, has had success in his latter years as an entrepreneur. And we were just always taught to knock on doors, to ask and to work hard, which didn't correlate to savings, but I think it correlated to creating money and understanding that if you can create a little pot of something and make it grow, that that is exciting. So I think maybe that sort of watching something grow is exciting, like with kids and seeds, right? If you watch the flowers grow, then actually they'll leave it. They won't pull them out. They want to see them bloom. Are you familiar with the Walter Mitchell marshmallow test from back in the 70s where when children were put in a room and they were presented with a marshmallow and they were told if you can if you not taste that marshmallow for the next 10 minutes, in 10 minutes time you'll get a second marshmallow. And then they just studied the kids doing it and some of the kids couldn't resist the temptation and just had to eat the marshmallow that was in front of them. Whereas what they found when they tracked this was the kids that managed to defer the moment and sort of imagine that in 10 minutes time, I'm going to get two of these things. They tended to be high performers in lots of other aspects of their life because that deferred gratification was seen as somebody able to imagine a future without necessarily being distracted by the present. I mean, if I was to take that in two parts, self-discipline is obviously really important. I am massively self-disciplined in some areas of my life. If today you offered me the marshmallow test, I've got to be honest, I think I'd fail. I'd be like, I just want a marshmallow. Uh, but if you asked me to just keep going and keep going about something to do with winning a piece of business or, you know, some of the elements of my business are short term and some of them are long term, right? If you want to you know, if I think about what the end of my business might be, that's a very long-term and very big goal. And I'm working every single day for years and years for that. So I think there's areas of life of self-discipline. I can believe that. I probably would have thought, if I think about it now, I probably would have thought, I really want that. I'll take it. And then I'll find another one somewhere else or I'll negotiate getting the second one anyway. That would probably have been quite me. There's also an element of risk-taking here as well. You know, when you take your student loan and you put it in stocks and shares, they can go down as well as up. And you could have been left at uni with no money and in a bit of trouble. So would you talk to us, please, about your relationship with risk? Because entrepreneurship is a risk and I want people to really you know, hear from you how they can balance that risk in their own minds. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a bit romanticised. So I could romanticise the answer, right? I, did, I don't think I really thought about the downside risk necessarily. And I suspect much like every time I've taken a risk in my life, I've thought, what's the worst that can happen? When I left my first very proper job, to start my very first business. I remember thinking the worst that could happen is I could have some debt, my ego would be bruised, and I'd have to go get a job in a third-rate place, whereas I was in a top-tier place with a job of my dream, so to speak. Um, I'm not sure that I can apply that romanticism back to when I was taking out my student loans. It was huge amounts of money for me, but I guess the worst would have been I would have lost it, and I knew that I had to pay it back when I started working I think you had to be earning 25 grand in order for that to trigger to have to pay back. And at that point, I was 18 with a part-time job and being someone who earned 25 grand a year seemed far off. So it seemed like free money uh, in many ways. I think though to apply it maybe more to now and that risk-taking, you know, I go through different phases of communicating how I feel about entrepreneurship and it's directly tied to how I'm feeling as, as an entrepreneur, you know, in really tough times. Uh, you know, my feelings might be slightly different to when we're on a roll or I can see I can see where we're going more clearly. I will say that the older I get, the more when someone says they want to start a business, I don't quite say, you know, don't do it. But if it's someone I know really well with a slight sense of humor where we can sort of just have a very quick sense, I'll be like, have a really good think about that. I used to say it was a little bit like building an extension on your house. You think it's going to be 10 grand and will take six months and actually 25 grand later and two and a half years later, um, you're quite tired. You're, you're a bit ratty. It hasn't gone exactly as planned and it was a lot more expensive and you needed more money. Um, it would be my kind of really quick and dirty way of explaining it to everybody. It is, it, there's lots of things that sound fabulous and fun and we're having a great chat about some stuff I did when I was younger. And I can tell you about my business with more passion than anyone because it's how I honestly feel. But on the flip side, I could also tell you that there are times when I'm absolutely exhausted. I'm a person that likes to reply to everything. And I became a person that couldn't reply to all of my emails. It was a real moment for me where I was like, I am not that person. <laughs> I have no choice but to be. If you have big ambitions for scale, uh, and, and I think that comes with sort of time, experience and maturity, it is so much 
there are lots of ways to be entrepreneurial and not necessarily start your own business. So I think entrepreneurialism is a kind of broad, I was going to say broad church, but broad synagogue, seeing as I'm Jewish. And it, it's not just setting up shop and it's certainly not all glamour and it's not, I'm the boss. And, you know, well, I, tell us more about that then. So what is it? So define entrepreneurialism for somebody that is interested in pursuing that mindset rather than necessarily going after their own business sure well i mean you know there are startups there are scale-ups there are large enterprises there are mammoth massive beasts like some of the ones behind me you know there are lots of different places where you can go and work or earn a living or be a very meaningful part of what you are doing day to day that requires entrepreneurial skills. You know, if you are in a sales team, picking up and making a hundred phone calls a week to people you don't know or reaching out to strangers is entrepreneurial. I've got people that I have in my company who I'd say are particularly entrepreneurial. They don't have their own business, they're in mine. They've got stock, they've got a vested interest, but they're really entrepreneurial people. So I think you can be entrepreneurial in your role at work, in your home life. Or in your side gigs, you can be entrepreneurial. You know, there are so many people who do side initiatives, whether they're philanthropic or helping a community or funding the local playground that needs to be fixed. And you've got to think about how to do that when you've only got 100 quid and no one that can give you money. Entrepreneurialism, really, I think, is creating a lot from a little. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean, I think, that you're building a business that people want to talk to you about or that's listed on the stock exchange. So when you talk about entrepreneurialism and people are listening to this and we get a lot of young listeners and sometimes they even message us saying, I'm not sure if I'm an entrepreneur or not. How would mm. you answer How would you answer that question? Because I actually struggle to sign up, give them an answer. I, well, who are, who are we and who are you to tell them what they are, I guess, in the nicest possible way, right? I often say this to people that have got their own limitations and I'm like, who knows? All of us have got a little bit of entrepreneur in us. All of us have got a little bit of our mums in us, even if we think our mums are a bit annoying. All of us have got a little bit of a little bit of everything in us, right? Our roots, our history, what we're exposed to. So if we are all 100 pieces, everyone's got a little bit of entrepreneur in them. Probably some people have either got a bit more than others or have a bit more tendency towards or pushed a bit more towards the other. You know, sometimes it's about life opportunity. I mean, you interview a lot of people and you talk to a lot of people. It's really easy to kind of paraphrase and squish down 10, 20, 30, 40 years of your life and tell a story. And there's certainly patterns in that. And I definitely can do that. And I'm very much me and I've become very much more a version of me over time. So if I look back at the old me, I now I get it. I get a lot of things, but I was encouraged by my dad. I've been allowed to do things by investors. I have been celebrated by friends for having a go at building a business. I think we're all also different things at different points in our life. I can take more risk now. I can take more personal risk now. I've got more personal capital and I can go out and get help. I can raise money easier. So I think to anyone that is thinking that or asking you that or wondering that, we're all a little bit of everything. And um, and who knows? But it'd be really exciting to find out. And I will always say, though, it is very important and good to get good experience elsewhere with other people. No one likes being told what to do. No one wants to... Uh, spend 10 hours slogging in a shop sometimes or whatever else it is that starts you off in life. But, you know, I, I often say, and I actually have a lot of friends who worked at McDonald's too, who would say it was like, it was like a mini MBA in a great life school. You know, I worked long days. I did all jobs from cleaning the toilets to making the burgers, but washing my hands in between, don't worry, um, <laughs> you know, to the tills. And yes, ultimately, when I got on the tills, it became clear that that's where you should put me because I was a natural upseller and I was, I'm naturally competitive. So I was like, you get a badge for like, if you sell £100 an hour or £200 an hour or £300 an hour, you get like a patch, a bit like brownies or guides to say, you know, well done, basically. So I was like, right. Uh, I want five stars and I want my patches. So, you know, I was able to see myself through that, but that taught me to turn up on time. I had to report to other people. I had to work in a team with people that I might not have loved or liked or necessarily got on with. So I guess my, my, and, and I say this, you know, my friends have got relatively young kids now, they're not teenagers, but for people I know that have got older kids and even people with means or where you want your children to study, or you don't want them to be distracted just working for somebody that doesn't owe you anything where they're just going to judge you by your performance is just such important life lessons i always had a job from 16 always i had a similar experience emma um but i never made it to the tills and i got fired from mcdonald's for a lack did of, you 
I had a they they I did an appraisal. They said you've got a lack of communication skills, and I lost my job. And I spent all Let's day send them this, cooking Jake. chips. Maybe Let's send them this about I'm, communication skills. I mean, I'm like, hello. Well, I, we all remember. I, I, they wouldn't give me a job, but a slightly different reason. I'd just done my GCSEs and I put my grades on. So this is the day of hard copy application forms. And just so we're clear, I have many weaknesses and failings. Got very good memory, got good results. So I remember going in and with my being so proud of all my you know, A's. And I, I remember Andy, the manager at Brent Cross, he was like, I think you're overqualified. I don't think this is the right place for you. And I remember begging for a job. So they, they didn't get it right, Jake, but it but, will get you on the McDonald's alumni but network again, at some point. You know, it was, it was hard for me, but not bad for me, which is exactly what you're saying about, you know, doing all these jobs at a young age. And I, I just want you to talk to us for a moment about not being in a rush. Again, we get so much feedback from people saying- I don't know if I can help with that. Oh, but I think, well, I'm, just, I'm certain that you can because people, particularly in the modern world with social media, where it looks like everyone's successful and everyone's perfect and having a great time, we feel like, oh, why am I not already there? How important is it, if at all, for yeah. us to realise that this is, this is about a journey and you do have to have those moments along the way where you feel like you're not going forwards and the growth is almost happening underground, if you like? I feel so sorry for people watching from afar. And what I'd like to tell all of those people is I do it too. If anyone thinks I wander around like, oh, big time entrepreneur, isn't that exciting? I'm killing it. That is just not how I feel uh, a lot of the time. It doesn't mean I feel like an abject failure and I have got a sense of self, but it really is a journey, you know, and, and it's that whole thing of, you know, when I was younger, I, I was never much of a magazine reader per se, but you used to read magazines. It'd be in your 20s, you do feel this. In your 30s, you feel this. In your 40s, you feel this. In your 70s, you're a total peace with yourself. And I used to be like, oh, it's just, what does that even mean? And as I go by, maybe as a decades pass or as my experience expands, I totally realize about what life experience does. I'm saying it right here. I'm not starting another business after I eventually either exit or whatever happens with this business. I, I'm not doing it again. I'm going to watch daytime telly and drink rosé for breakfast. I'm very tired of doing this for a very long time. But, you know, if I was to do it again, each time I do do this, what I acquire in experience has just made such a difference, if only to my stress levels, because now my rule is unless someone has died, everything is fine which is true because I've had every single possible problem that's conceivable in a business. So I think it's good to be ambitious and it's good to be aggressive in the right ways. I was, I wanted everything fastest, you know, in every job I did, I always worked harder than I needed to because I really wanted to. It was my natural way, but I wanted to be noticed. I wanted to be promoted. I wanted to have exposure to all of the right people, but equally for people listening who don't, that doesn't resonate with. We're not all like that. Some people don't want that. I mean, I've got friends, family, stepchildren, where maybe they have different life goals about how they want to move through the world. And not everybody does want to build an empire or race or work five extra shifts a week for the extra cash. We should all go through life and work out a little bit of what our rhythm is and what serves us best if we're able to, I think. That's another life lesson, which is we're all different and we should celebrate that. Well, that difference is something that I'd like to touch on, Emma, because your like your company's all about networking and connecting and valuing that difference in others. Now, we do have some listeners that would sometimes believe that, you know, working collaboratively almost does slow you down or means that you become part of the herd rather than standing out. So how do you work collaboratively with other people while still going after your own goals and your ambitions and achieving success? Well, I think that's such a great thing to raise so that everybody hears it really clearly. So yes, my, my day job is we power alumni network. So actually we do that at scale. When companies need to, at scale, stay connected to people, it's impossible to do it with a phone call or a spreadsheet or a WhatsApp like you and I might do. I think, in fact, I know everything in my life has come from connections. It doesn't mean you have to always work at a team or if you're busy, sometimes I get stuff done myself rightly or wrongly but connections are not just at work they're everywhere and they're everywhere in life and if you think when you're at school or you're at university or you're on a bus or you're on a train backpacking through I don't know somewhere on your summer holidays you never know where people are going in life and it's not just about oh I should stay in touch with that person because I'm not sure what they're going to become but I personally find some people fascinating and I have got friends that are entrepreneurs and I've got friends that I grew up with I've got friends that I, I mean, it's, a, it's an ongoing joke in the company. Sometimes I'll be in, I 
there's someone we need to hire. And one of my colleagues will always say, have you just been on a bus talking to somebody and you met someone great? And I'll be like, yes. Or Joe and the Juice, we recently hired the most wonderful young person who used to hold court at Joe and the Juice and upsell me every single time. I'm like, what are you doing there? Please come and work for us. So I think, you know, that concept of just like who you meet and staying in touch is the greatest life lesson I can offer anyone, not just for professional success, but personal success. I feel like, and it's taken a lifetime to get here, but I feel like if there's almost anything that I need to do, philanthropic, professional, I need to help somebody who's, you know, I have a lot of refugees and asylum seekers that live in my home. I need to find someone, a school bag, a job, a sponsor, a mentor, shoes, anything. Over time now, I've just got people all over the place. It is my joy and pleasure to know that generally if I ask for something and it's generally not for me as well, people are so lovely and delighted to help. And those are people that I've met everywhere in the strangest of places. I mean, if I gave you an example of the last, you know, three people I met super randomly that are now sort of very firm parts of my life, it, it sounds crazy, but it's the most wonderful joy. It's just that wonderful, rich tapestry of people that I know, and I would encourage people to think about that. A phrase we often use on this podcast is life is a team sport. And I'd love you to share with us how you get to this place. What are the questions you ask people? How do you react when someone walks into a room and comes over and speaks to you so that they feel that they're comfortable coming to a successful entrepreneur and being open and being vulnerable? How do we start helping people to actually gain the skills to be open, to make connections, which allows everyone to grow? Okay, three parts. Life is a team sport, people approaching me, and I guess... How do you uh, communicate that in a room? Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, this um, this conversation we're having doesn't allow for anyone else in my family or friends to input in my answers because <laughs> it's an ongoing joke sometimes that, um, that that team sports aren't my finest if they're mental team sports. Crystal Maze Challenge that we did recently as a group, I can't concentrate and do maths in my head if people are shouting questions at me. So it was mooted that I wasn't great at that a couple of weeks ago took note but it is right everything is uh, whether it's a business whether it's a personal life whether it's building a home i think the skill is bringing people with you it's getting people to be able to come with you on a journey i recently launched something in the uk to help refugees find jobs and it started as a small initiative i thought the government would take over and it turned into something where i partnered along with a lot of very large companies to work with a very large charity that was that was tens of thousands of people moving all in the right direction to make something happen. And it started by being able to reach out to the people closest to me in the first 10 to get them to move with me, and then the next 10. So I guess the, time, the team sport analogy is absolutely right. To the point more about sort of people approaching me or just being in a room. I said to you before, I was mortally shy as a child. I don't really love a large room. I'll happily walk into a dinner and won't stop talking if people are interesting. I'll happily stand on stage and, and do as required because it's talking about something in my comfort zone. I never liked, and I don't always especially like large rooms and small talk. I've learned, but for the purposes of other people listening in and thinking about that, I'm always like, it's about getting yourself noticed because that is what in hindsight and then very proactively when I learned it, I did. If you're the first person to put a hand up and ask a question in a room at an event, a conference, a dinner, whatever it might be, the person receiving your question is going to hear you and remember you. I always do want a pay it forward for the first person to ask me a question in a room. That is just kind of my rule of thumb. I can't do everything. I can't do something nice for everybody. I'd really like to. So I always try and do the My pay it forward is for the first person to ask me a question. But also there's Twitter and there's LinkedIn and not everyone can reply to you. But if you ask a question in a room or on social media where other people, what happens is all the other people in a room, even if you're not the speaker, hear your question and 5% of them are like, oh, I'm really interested now. I want to do that. Or that's my business. Or I want to work in that space. So actually, just by putting your hand up in a room, whatever that room is, you're actually suddenly rallying all those people to come and find you proactively. So I don't know about the approaching me thing. I'm very nice. But there's always there's always lots to do and I'm a bit time poor. But I just I, I find human connections and starting a conversation is, is never that hard. Do it in a lift do it wherever you are. Sometimes I'm on an airplane and I recognize somebody or I'm like, they're wearing swag from a company that I'm really interested in. And I, I just start talking to people now. And is there a killer question you would ask someone before you make the decision to hire them or to 
make them part of your world or your business? Hiring is maybe a slightly different thing. Yes. I will say that for me, there are two types of hiring, very specific skills that you need from someone where you need to be clear that they can do it. And then places, positions, jobs where people don't necessarily need to have very prerequisite skills, coding, you know, maths, whatever it might be. So a lot of that is about propensity to learn possibility and personality not the three P's, which you might have concluded, but they just came out that way. Um, I am a really big hirer on the first 30 seconds and intuition. There are downstairs, and I'm in the London office today, downstairs in the London office, there's a collection of people that I hired myself through a medium that could not be planned and probably no one could necessarily subscribe to in order for it to happen. But I'm always looking at good and for good people. So Joe... Alex from Joe and the Juice is an excellent example. The 10th time I went, went in and I saw him, 22, navigating people that were cross spending £10 on a juice. Where is my... Th- he, just used to, he just used to hold this room full of people in, in Mayfair, which is a very expensive part of London. I was like, if you could keep all these people super calm and then they end up also buying a cake because you upsell them. What you know? I used to watch and I went and spoke to him. We've got someone that joined us, our first Ukrainian uh, team member in London who drove to London from Kiev with her two children, stopped on the way at a fountain in Belgium to stretch her legs, started talking to somebody that was from London who said, you should find Emma Sinclair. She's working on jobs for for, for Ukrainians. And she reached out to me. So she came into the office 24 hours later and I was like, I could see what she was capable of. I understood her experience. And worst case scenario, she could get started here and help us and we could help her get on a way to get her next job because it's easier to get one. So skills on the one hand, which tends to be something that these days other people vet for me. And for me, it's culture and personality and ability. And that's slightly an intuitive thing. I've hired a lot of my best hires. My assistant right now was my spin teacher before COVID. She was Yeah. And what's what's she hired as? She is my EA. She's now going on to do internal culture and events. But that's what I love as well, because you see someone in one role and I come from a TV background, Emma, and the biggest frustration for me for years was when I was on kids TV and I wanted to work in sports broadcasting, I would go in for a meeting and they go, but you're a kids presenter. And it was a voice in my head screaming, I'm not a kids TV presenter. I'm a TV presenter currently employed by kids TV, but I wasn't brave enough, bold enough, confident enough at the time. So I went, yeah, okay. And I moved on. There's something wonderful about not just hiring people, but hiring people from one place. I mean, you take a yoga teacher and then they're in charge of culture. Like, that's fantastic. And I think that's a, something that we should talk about. Well, you know, Keely is my equal. We just do different things. And yes. I met her Brilliant. two ways. I met her when she was teaching spin down the road from me. But I, that's not how I met her. To, someone sent a message out in one of my founder communities, about 400 of us, saying, naming this person. She's helping me a little bit with admin. Uh, she's looking for something uh, to support someone part time. And I needed someone to do some stuff about a thing. So I was like, oh, I'll meet her. And I met her and she came in and I was having a chat. She was fantastic. And then she said something about weekend and working. And I was asking her what she did. And I was like, oh my God, I knew I recognized you from somewhere because it's pretty dark in my spin room. You know, she was just so fabulous and motivating. And I already knew that. And I'd had a great conversation with her about what she needed to do. So she started off doing something else, a little bit sort of enclosed. And now, you know, she works in my office directly with me. But I do think that it possibly takes either an entrepreneur or a relatively worldly person that's confident in themselves to do that. I'm not saying I'm better at hiring, but for example, like I'm hiring quite a few people for directly for my office right now. And all the job specs and wonderful things have been put together, but I always have to add to them. And what I'm usually adding is something to convey emotional intelligence. I'm looking for my equal. We have different roles to do, but if we're going to work together closely, first of all, I'm a strong personality. You better have a strong personality or this is not going to work so well. But also I want someone that's going to teach me something or push back occasionally, not just for the sake of it, but because that's how it should be. We could go on forever about people I found in places who've been some of the most magnificent hires because they're great people who are smart and have an ability to, who have stature and gravitas. You can feel that when someone walks in a room. I think you can anyway. And that leads us then to a challenge that I think you offered a lot of people that maybe have a stereotypical view of entrepreneurs. 
that, that you almost have to be selfish or ruthless to be successful in business. And yet at the heart of what you've just described to us there and equally the work you've done with like the refugee community, there's a selflessness. Would you tell us a little bit about why that can be an incredibly powerful trait to adopt? Thank you. That's a nice thing to say. Um, I have many imperfections and there is an element of selfishness in anything anyone does if it's very persistent, consistent and time consuming. And so there's an element of selfishness in running a business. You know, there is, you know, collateral damage is probably not the right words, but there are, there are things that get put by the wayside, right? I'm very lucky that most of my closest friends I've had all my life because I'm not always there. I'm, I'm often not there for drinks and everything else, but I love my friends as much and, and call me anytime. Look, we all have different personalities. I think also we're all motivated by different things and we all have different levels of energy. So no, no element of competition or anything of that sort. Some people do things small and quietly and some people uh, occasionally do things where they're a little bit more reported on or certainly more easier to spot. For my part, um, many, many years ago, as a result of a story we don't have time for, uh, I met a group of women who just started to have asylum seekers under 18, so children in their homes, because there was no real way to deal with that because they weren't necessarily in the system immediately. And so I used to do that. And I used to have, effectively, it was always teenagers, mainly teenage boys, because they were the ones that were either brave enough or the mums and dads sent them over first, who would live with me. And it started a real journey as regards refugees. Also, you know, my family came from Eastern Europe about 100 years ago. My dad's side from the Ukraine, my mum's side from places where borders have moved around a lot. Um, and my mother's side had a lot more people who died in the Holocaust and didn't make it. So I come from Eastern European stock that got here with nothing. And I really believe, and I talk about my, I've already talked about my dad a lot. You know, my dad really strives for me to have the best education that he didn't have to give me all of the opportunity in the world, which I think is quite a refugee mentality, which is, you know, get educated and you'll have opportunity. That whole joke about people becoming accountants and doctors, because wherever you go effectively with mobility, those skills are wanted. So for my part, it's been a, a genuinely a joy and a pleasure. I have a lot of semi-adopted kids. Uh, the last one left home quite a few years ago and is currently a hairdresser down the road from my office. So occasionally I, I go and see him for a blow dry and it just makes my heart explode uh, to watch him do that. His mum and his siblings have recently arrived in the UK. It's a journey I took by an accident that's been an absolute pleasure. And it's led to it's led to many things. You know, it's led to, to our connection through PwC, who were one of the first five sponsors of the uh, Ukrainian initiative that I launched, the Big Business Consortium, where we've had uh, businesses, large businesses from around the UK and around the world, partnering with RefuAid to help people find jobs commensurate with experience. And, and you know, you both asked me about why. Imagine being a maths professor or a chemist or a doctor or a vet, and you land somewhere and your years of education and skills can't be repurposed here. You don't speak the language, so you've got an immediate barrier in that regard, and that is the number one barrier for people arriving here. But if you are a vet, for example, there's a massive backlog due to COVID for taking the vet conversion exams to practice here. If you are a dentist, there's a three and a half year waiting list in order to take your exams to be able to practice. It's just absolutely horrendous and it infuriates me, A, about those backlogs, if I'm honest, but B, also that you get here, you're qualified, you were able to support your family and probably the only thing that you can do to survive in that instance is go stack shelves. And there is nothing wrong with stacking a shelf. And Jake and I are clearly uh, fabulous alumni of McDonald's, but we had prospects or we knew that it was a part of the journey. But I have friends, family who weren't able to get out of that. And all they were able to do despite being skilled was something that wasn't enough for them. So it started as something small that I thought that I could contain and get on the front page of the Sunday Times in order to motivate people and the government to step up. And it ended up being something where it seemed like the best way forward was to do it myself. So it's a joy and a pleasure. I've got my bachelorette party tomorrow night and two of the people that I've met on that journey, a lady called Inas from Cardiff, who's retraining as a, as a teacher, having come from Syria, my friend Natalia from the Ukraine. You know, I've just met people who make my life better. So sounds a bit corny, but lucky me for being able to do that. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound corny. It sounds lovely. And it's been Thank a really you. interesting conversation. And we're going to move on to our quick fire questions in a moment. But before we do, 
it's so clear, even though we're not in the same room recording this interview, that your love for what you do, your passion, um, it seems as burning and as strong as ever. What's the hidden cost of the life that you've lived and the way that the way you've operated? My health, um, time with my family. My grandma's 98. I see her as much as I can. I'd love to see her more. I mean, I do prioritise her. Probably my holidays are usually tagged on to the end of a city visit where <laughs> I've been for work. A, a lot of things, right? I'm, I'm a bit behind on box sets. Uh, my cats probably, probably I overindulge them with tuna because I'm not there very much when I'm traveling. There's a, a real human cost for which no violins out and nothing to feel sorry about, but there absolutely is. And my grandpa, my grandpa always gave me two pieces of advice. Don't get old and you'll never be able to get back time that you spent at work <laughs> when you're in a diet, your deathbed, uh, two of which are a bit tricky for me. But I will absolutely say that I have made the most amazing friends and ex been exposed to people, experiences, been invited to do things beyond my wildest dreams as a result of that time I spent, right? Why are we talking today? I've driven myself bananas for a long time building businesses, but I've got the opportunity to share this with you today. And, and that is a marvelous thing. So it's worth the cost. It's, it feels like it's worth the cost to me now. But again, what I'm doing also provides for all the people that I love. So it feels right for me and it feels right for me right now. And if that ever changes, I won't, you know, you can't fake what you're feeling about my passion. At some point, maybe that won't be there. And maybe I'm like, all right, time for a change. But right now I know where I want to go and I'm super focused on getting there. Well, it's time for our quick fire questions, Emma. Okay. Um, first nice. one. Well, the first one is what are the three non-negotiables that you and the people around you have to buy into? I guess kindness, respect and empathy. Very nice. Your biggest strength and your greatest weakness? My biggest strength, probably persistence. Many people have said to me, if I had your persistence, I would be X, Y, Z here, there and everywhere. Uh, my biggest weakness is... Uh, pet videos on Instagram, I'd have a lot more sleep and I'd have done a lot more work if you couldn't watch cats and ducks cuddling each other with goats for 25 minutes. We've all got minutes. a weakness. We've all got a weakness. I mean, I exposed it here. Don't tell. <laughs> so what's your biggest failure and how did you react to it? I mean, I'm, I fail all the time and I shove it under the carpet. I don't know. Today's answer would probably be telling my younger self to feel more confident about the decisions I was making or the journey I was going on and to speak up. I never spoke up a lot. I was really shy. I did always say hello in a lift quietly to the boss and those sorts of things. That was my, that was my manners. But I wish I'd spoken up more. Probably would have achieved more faster because I was always a bit too shy to ask. Would you recommend one book that our listeners should read that's been helpful for you? I really like uh, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugs by Anne Rand. I mean, they were given to me by my best friend many years ago, and they basically talk about there's elements in them about selfishness, which doesn't appeal to lots of people, which I can entirely understand. But for me, they're great tales of creation, creating something from nothing and and how love and business and social policy overlap. But they are very fat books and I didn't read them for years. I suppose uh, other than that, I am that person who by the pool or by the beach, if I'm reading a book, is reading a book about how. IBM became IBM or, you know, some element of a business book whilst everybody else is reading something lovely about the world or a, a rom-com. So I've enjoyed many. Most recently, I'm revisiting, rereading The Alliance by uh, Reid Hoffman and Chris Yeh, which is effectively the precursor to my business in many ways, but it's about how people should interact and how in a professional sense you should stay connected to other people because you don't know where they're going to go, right? These days, people stay in jobs for two years or three years, whereas my parents stayed in a job for a lifetime. So I'm rereading that because it's partially relevant to my book, but actually reading about relationships is something I quite enjoy doing. And finally then, Emma, what's your one golden rule that you'd share with us for listeners to live a high performance life? What is, I mean, that is a very hard question. I think persistence has probably been a consistent, persistent thing I've said in this. So probably that tempering that with if something is not working there's nothing wrong with just drawing a line and going in a different direction so persistence doesn't mean hanging on to a bone for dear life 
for as long as possible, even if that bone is not the right bone. Sometimes you have to say to yourself very quickly, I've been doing this for a long time, but it's not right. And I'm suddenly going to take a U-turn or go left. So persistence, but knowing also when to change direction with that persistence. Emma, so many takeaways in that conversation. I get the sense that people will learn a lot from that. And you're too humble to agree with me. I know you were about to say, oh, I don't think so, but they will. And it's so kind of you to come on here after all these years of hard work and graft and failure and success and learning and understanding other people to come on and and share so much it's a sign of your generosity which is also shone through in this interview so thank you that's very kind that's very kind but hopefully especially some of those young people have given had food for thought and get on twitter tweet us other entrepreneurs business leaders sports people because people generally reply ask questions when i started you couldn't ask these questions but now everyone can ask us these questions anyway anyhow so lucky them thank you very much for having me damien jake so much to take away from that you know my favorite thing was when she said everyone is my equal we just do different things oh yeah powerful wasn't it well, we just Why did that resonate with you? well just because you know, if you're on the telly, you're more important than someone that isn't on the telly. If you're a CEO, you're more important than an intern. If you're working on the teals in McDonald's, you're more important than the person like me who used to cook the chips. You know, there's, society is all about ranking us and putting us in categories. And they're all those categories are all about making some people feel great and some people feel not great. And f- I think that's a really good way of thinking. Everyone is my equal. We just do different things. Because actually, does it matter? what your job is, what your role is, what your position is in a business. That's not you. That's not the person, is it? That's just society's label that's stuck on you. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, did, I saw a quote this week that reminds me of what you're talking about there. It was an old Muhammad Ali quote where he said that, I don't trust someone who's nice to me but rude to the waiter because that would tell me that they'd treat me in the same way if I were in that position. And I think it's about human connections, which is what Emma spoke really powerfully there, the way she spoke about refugees that she's taken in and just seeing the person not even using that title of being a refugee you know and seeing the person behind it is really powerful and obviously testimony to her ability to connect and engage with others that's made her so successful it was great thank you mate loved it mate thank you well i really hope you enjoyed today's conversation listen most people that listen to this podcast don't follow us. They don't subscribe to our channels. Wherever you're listening to this, if you can please just hit subscribe, um, it basically means that we can move up the charts. It basically means that we can reach out to more people than ever before. We can grow the brand so that we can continue to change lives through high performance because it's only you that is growing this podcast. It's only you sharing this podcast that means we can have an impact. So please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from this series. Thanks to the whole team for their hard work. Thanks to PwC for being our partners. Remember, there is no secret. It's all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. And we'll see you soon.